0: everyone and welcome to episode seven of on call with angel md the podcast at the intersection of finance healthcare and entrepreneurship this is your short and sweet reminder to please subscribe rate and review on call on itunes if you haven't already you can find us by searching on call with angel md in the itunes store this will ensure you get episodes straight to your library as soon as they are available If there's anything I learned by growing up in Silicon Valley, it's that people are first drawn to something if it's new, and then stay interested if it's good. The topsy-turvy world of startups is the perfect example. There are startups that do pretty unimportant things, but get a lot of attention for doing it. Cough. Juicero. Cough, cough. But every once in a while, one comes along that seems to be a stunning combination of both. A unicorn. A unicorn. What is a unicorn? If you've read any story coming out of Silicon Valley in the past few years, you might be familiar with the term unicorn in reference to a super promising, hyped-up startup. Famous past unicorns include LinkedIn and Facebook, although these days Facebook is looking a little bit more like a horse with a cone strapped on its head. By definition, a unicorn is a startup with a valuation of more than $1 billion. The term was coined by Eileen Lee, founder of Cowboy Ventures in 2013, after finding that only 0.07% of venture-backed consumer and enterprise software startups had a valuation of $1 billion, making them extremely rare, just like a unicorn. Although I'd like to point out that considering unicorns are mythical, I would like to officially suggest that we replace the term with something that does exist, but is rarely seen, like a giant squid. Although I guess unicorn has a better ring to it. The definition of a unicorn is a little odd because, as you'll note, there's no time limit to achieve said billion-dollar valuation. Is a company that takes 10 years and hits one billion really that promising? If they're over 10 years, are they even still a startup? It's not immediately clear. Though unicorn has a formal definition, some consider being a disruptor or a game-changer in the industry as an additional requirement. This makes sense if you're going to give something a one-billion-dollar valuation. It ought to have a huge impact. Here's a question that they might ask. Is this company doing something so revolutionary that we one day couldn't picture a world without it? Take Theranos as an example. They literally reached unicorn status on a concept alone. We know now, Theranos never had the hard science, but the idea of a single drop blood test was so compelling that they got their billion dollar valuation anyway. Valuation also isn't exactly a hard science. It's pretty subjective, actually, and mainly based on how investors interpret the metrics your company puts forth. According to an article in Seedcamp, quote, The biggest determinant of your startup's value are the market forces of the industry and sector in which it plays, which include the balance or imbalance between demand and supply of money. The recency and size of recent exits, the willingness for an investor to pay a premium into a deal, and the level of desperation of that entrepreneur looking for money, end quote. Most of these things are not consistent metrics. Some of them don't even follow patterns. The willingness of an investor and the desperation of an entrepreneur are basically human emotions, and that's not something that can be accurately predicted or assumed. This is part of why incorrect valuations exist. In fact, in February of this year, the National Bureau of Economic Research published a study that unicorns are overvalued by 48% on average. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Overvalued by 48%? How is that possible? It's pretty much spelled out in the abstract of the study, which I will link along with the Wired article it's referenced in. In the study, the researchers calculated, quote, new, unquote, valuations, based on financial terms from legal filings. And when examining the large difference in those they calculated from those reported, they found that the reported valuations assume all shares are as valuable as the most recently issued preferred shares. Okay, let's pause, cause to some of you that probably sounded like a lot of fancy financial talk. A preferred share, or more commonly known as preferred stock, is a type of stock that has a higher claim on its assets and earnings. Basically, when the pay comes out, preferred stockholders are owned a portion of the earning before common stockholders see any cash. So, when researchers calculate the new valuation, they've calculated values for each share class, not just assuming the value given to the most recent group of investors. After all the math settled, 65 of the 135 startups evaluated lost their unicorn status. In other words, not all that glitters is gold. There are unicorns that do not end up being the arousing success that they were made out to be. The lack of unicorns in healthcare. According to CBS Insights, 15 of 197 unicorns are healthcare startups. In other words, if any startup reaching 1 billion is a unicorn, a healthcare startup reaching 1 billion is a pegasus. Though there aren't many of them, healthcare unicorns do exist. Genetic testing service 23andMe is probably the most well-known, followed by ZocDoc. Why so few? The first answer you'll probably get to that question is the age-old explanation for slow-moving progress in healthcare, regulation. Unless you're a company like ZocDoc, whose product, though used in the healthcare industry, does not actually do anything to a patient, then you're likely going to need to get whatever the heck it is you're doing approved by the FDA or other relevant regulating bodies. But perhaps the better question is, should there be unicorns in healthcare? Is the unicorn roadmap truly the best route for a company operating in healthcare? A lot of that depends on the company's goals, but there has been kind of a shift in the way people view unicorns. Some industry leaders have been critical of the obsessions with unicorn status. At a conference in 2015, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff stated that startups trap themselves by staying private for too long and raising too much money, explaining that, quote, they can't go public because their last valuation would be higher than their public valuation, end quote. This is pretty big concern around unicorns. To reach unicorn status, you're going through a lot of funding rounds, and each time you do that, you're diluting your ownership of the company. So can unicorn status actually be bad for an entrepreneur? Yes. Yes, it can. In a blog post by venture firm Edison Partners, senior associate Doba Parushev points out that even if you put in all the time and effort associated with doubling your valuation, you can still end up making the same amount of money after the dilution. At Angela D's 2018 Alpha Conference, Strategic Exits Corp. CEO Basil Peters even floated the idea that VCs are not great for founders in general.
1: What's really interesting to me is that the recent evidence is that not only do those venture capital investments usually bring bad news for the angels, there's some really interesting new evidence that's come out of Willamette University, uh, Rob Wiltbank's group there, that's actually proven to a statistical certainty it's not good news for the entrepreneurs either. So I think what's happening is, A simple Darwinian process where the need, the fundamental need that the venture capital funds served is no longer required in the economy. But there are quite a few of my friends who are still running venture capital funds because they have some big ones and the management fees alone afford them a very nice lifestyle. So they're continuing to operate in the ecosystem. But with a you know small number of exceptions, lots of the time what they do is not healthy for the entrepreneurs or the angels or the ecosystem.
0: As you can tell, Basil is a fan of Early Exits. In fact, he literally wrote the book on it. It's called Early Exits and it's available wherever books are sold. An early exit is obviously a great option for a startup, but there are some companies where it just won't work and that's okay. The point of this isn't to say that any alternative is a terrible way to have an exit, but rather to show that there are multiple exit options. Here's Basil's recommendation for how to be proactive in developing an exit plan.
1: It's hard to say in general, but typically a well-designed exit will take six to 18 months. And what I wish is that in an ideal situation, the company's board would incorporate that time delay in the overall strategic and operating plan and then look forward in time and start the exit process 12 to 18 months before the peak in the company's value. So what I'm saying is, in an extremely idealized way, just to make the example clearer, you know, if we started a company, they typically grow fast when they're small, like small people grow fast when they're small, then they get to a point where, what I wish would happen is we'd start the exit 12 to 18 months before that peak in the value, and then in, again, highly idealized, just model, we'd sell at the peak of the value. But unfortunately, that's not what happens most of the time. Most of the time, because entrepreneurs and angels are optimists, we wait until we get this feeling that the company's best days are actually behind it. We get this feeling that, you know, now there's more competition, and, oh, look, the margins are compressing, and maybe something didn't quite work out with the science the way that we thought. Maybe we should sell the company. So we start the process once it's clear on the inside that the value has peaked. But the challenge is, because of that 12 to 18-month delay, by the time you get around to the serious negotiation, it's clear to everyone that this company's value peaked some time ago, and you end up very often exiting well past that peak in the value at a point when the return is much lower. And of course, that's a real heartbreaking financial loss for not only us angel investors, but also the entrepreneurs. But it's actually quite a bit worse for the entrepreneurs because for them, there's this big part of their life that they're never going to get back. There's often years where they went to work, they worked their hearts out, went home every day a little bit poorer because they missed the ideal time to exit and the value of their company regardless of their hard work and inspiration was declining.
0: I wanted to bring in Basil's point of view here because I think he paints a more realistic picture of how startups can succeed. And it's in a way that's more likely to be beneficial to all parties than the unicorn scenario. Basically, you don't need to be a unicorn to get your chance to ride into the sunset. Thank you for listening to On Call with AngelMD. Visit us at angelmd.co for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at angelmd underscore inc. We're on Facebook at backslash angelmd inc. And you can find us on LinkedIn as well. I'm also on Twitter at smacha1995. As this is the first season of On Call, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us with the hashtag angelmd and let us know what you thought of the episode. Thanks again for listening. We hope you join again.